Hello, my name is Sam Smith, and this is Map of the Maze podcast from Pep Talks, in which I'll be exploring a business theme related specifically to private equity-backed and entrepreneurial companies. Welcome uh, to our next episode of Map of the Maze. Delighted to have Richard Cotter joining us uh, this afternoon. Richard is currently a chair of uh, three or four private equity-backed companies, which, which I'll come back to, but has also been a CEO in private equity of Snow and Rock and has a very interesting background, which we will go into in a second. Uh, but we held a fantastic dinner about five weeks ago, which we've had some um, wonderful feedback from, and uh, we thought we'd try and get the best of that into this podcast. So welcome, Richard. Cool. Good to be here. So in, in just term, in terms of intro, uh, your background... It's different from most in that you've had a number of episodes, really, in your career. The first being a fairly, uh, forgive me for saying it, unsuccessful episode at school, (laughs) (laughs) where you openly say you left at 17. Yeah, that's an understatement. (laughs) It was uh, spectacularly unsuccessful. Yeah. But you were pretty good at a couple of things, which was, like, they they were sport, weren't they? Sport-related. When I I was at school... um, Sport was my life, and one of my school reports once said, if he applied himself half as much in the classroom as he does on the sports field, he'll go far. Mm. And you did. You went and had a professional sports career, didn't you? Yeah, so I, so I played six different sports at representative level, um, could have turned pro at three of them, uh, eventually, eventually turned pro at golf. I played semi-pro football, I played semi-pro cricket. Um, but golf was really my, my driving passion, so 17, I left before going to university, turned pro, and decided I was going to be the English equivalent of Seve Ballesteros. So what happened? <laughs> I didn't quite make it. <laughs> Look, I had a lot of fun. It was, it, you know, when you're 17 years old, if, you, if somebody said to you, do you want to spend the next 10 years of your life being a golf pro? I mean, almost every young kid would say, yes, I, I did. I had a fantastic time. I wasn't good enough to make it on the tour. You know, the tour, even back in those days, was a challenging place to be. Um, so, so I kind of figured at sort of late 20s, it was not going to be what I wanted to do for, for the rest of my life, and I ought to go into business. Yeah, better go and get a job. Yeah. And you went into retail, you went and worked for um, House of Fraser, and that competitive edge of yours got you got your places quite quickly didn't it sort of got you up the field yeah, I, mean, I think I think when you play professional sport you have your hardened to um, you know you achieve what you put in right and and you kind of I just adopted that as a principle of my business career and you know I was never content to sit there and just do stuff and, and hope at some point I got on it was for me about okay you know I'm better than these guys I'll just have to show them how much better I am so mm. so yeah and um, it went well, and then we sort of accelerate to maybe the sort of the job that defined you, I suppose, in that first stage of your career, which was Berghaus. And yeah, it was a relatively small business, wasn't it, when you when you arrived? Yeah, when I took I took over in Berghaus in uh, two thousand and six, and uh, it was part of what well, still is part of the Pentland Group, um, and it was. It was 95% UK-based business when they bought it, and when I took over in 2006, it was still 95% UK-based. Um, and my brief was, you know, globalise it, take advantage of, of a growing outdoor outdoor participation market. You developed a relationship there with somebody, uh, your chairman. 
Yeah, so so I was I was really lucky. Uh, Sir Chris Bonington was the chairman and and kind of the figurehead of Burkhouse, and he'd been involved with the brand for twenty five plus years before before I got there. And Chris and I really hit it off. He's an am, amazing, amazing man, and I I, I don't say that lightly. Um, he taught me a lot about not so much about business, but he taught me a lot about life. And then uh, you found yourself in. In the world of private equity with Snow and Rock, yep. which I'm sure we'll come back to, but that was, you know, something that wasn't going swimmingly well when you when you came in and actually got a great result and turned it around yep. and got it away for everybody in in a in a means in a way that probably people didn't expect from the yep. outset. And then you you embarked on your career today as a as a non-exec and portfolio chairman, yeah, plural portfolio yeah, yeah. chair. What we haven't talked about is the fact that Richard has also written a book, a fabulous book uh, that's uh, it's available on Amazon. It's called The Zebra Reality, which no one at the dinner was expecting. And uh, I think a lot of them have read it yep. <laughs> and found it really useful. I've read it um, cover to cover uh, twice, I think, uh, at least twice, probably more than that. And it's a brilliant book. It's a brilliant business leadership, business management piece of work of working towards building the optimal business. So why don't you just tell us a bit about the book? Um, so, so the book was just something I'd always promised myself I would do. You know, you you spend a career, you develop a, a, a kind of guiding process that, that you adopt when you go into businesses that, that makes you successful. At the front end, you don't really know you're building or formulating a process. You just kind of do what instinctively or intuitively is right. Um, as you build your career and you achieve success following success you start to try to understand what it is that's making you successful um, and, and I think after after we sold Snow and Rock which was a which was a pretty successful exit for for the shareholders I took a bit of time out I had a new uh, a new son and I figured look I'm never ever going to get the chance to spend six months with with my uh, with my new son so I took six months out so I invested some more time turned it into a into a proper book and then yeah it became an Amazon bestseller. Should we talk about so the five step sort of plan? Step one and step two, probably most of our audience are well prepared in in terms of you know the CEO role and private equity, but it's I think it's great to sort of cover them because I know a few of them are in businesses that they've been put into, a bit yep. like you and Snow and Rock where perhaps things aren't going uh, they're definitely not going to plan and they do need a strategic change so step one really you talk about what kind of zebra are we that's just yeah. what do you mean by that so, so, so the book the book is called the zebra reality um and uh I, i'm one of the one of the lessons that i've learned throughout my career both as a ceo as a chairman but also in the strategic consulting work that i do is invariably i go into businesses and i find um a, a misalignment within the business between either shareholders and management team or management team and senior managers or management team and, the, and just the general workforce in the business. Um, and I kind of fell on this, this kind of descriptor of if you walk into a business and show 100 people in the business a picture of a zebra, 100 people will say, that's a zebra. Um, if you go into the into your business, find the same hundred people and go describe our business, you'll get a hundred different descriptions, right? Mm. 
um, and and you know the, the single thing that came out through all the businesses that I've been involved in, either executive or non-executive, is as soon as you get misalignment between functions, you you create an inefficiency, and as soon as you create an inefficiency, you're going to suboptimize your your output or your return, right? So 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 that's kind of where the name came from. You know, at the end of the day, it's it's a book name, but the principle behind the book name is absolutely valid. Mm-hmm. How did you use that approach in Snow and Rock? Then let's apply it to that experience. So, you know, the, there are five stages in the book. The, the first stage um, is is about really how is the business performing, um, and what is the business really accomplishing. And and again, invariably, I find, especially when you go into a turnaround or a distressed business. Um, what you find typically is people are kidding themselves about about how good the business is mm. and about what it's actually doing, and you know there's a piece in the in the first chapter about the numbers never lie, right? And it's absolutely true. You know you go into businesses and loads of people in an organisation will always tell you, uh, yeah, you know we're a victim of a tough market or you know we're doing better than our competitors or they'll have loads of reasons and excuses like that. But the reality is when you look at the numbers, you, you're not good enough. You're not hitting. You're not hitting your budget. So so you do a reforecast. You don't hit your reforecast. So you do another reforecast. You don't hit that. So you do another reforecast. Right. Rather than addressing the root cause of why you're underperforming, mm. and 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 that I think is is the first part that any CEO in a new business or chairman or anybody going into to a business which is underperforming has got to address. Mm. Why we why was snow and rock underperforming? Um, there's always a there's always a number of reasons why the business is underperforming, and, and I guess fundamentally that's the second chapter, which mm-hmm. which is about strategy. What you've got to do first off is is determine how and why the business is not performing, um, and and you, you know there are lots of different areas you can go look. So you you can look at your monthly management accounts or your year end accounts or whatever they are. You can go talk to customers. You can go talk to consumers. You can go, you know, I, I just spent day after day in the shops, yeah. day after day in the, in the stores, talking to people about why they bought, why they didn't buy, what was the motivation, what did they come in for, what, you know, and gradually built this picture of um, where and why the business was suboptimal. Fundamentally, in, in the Snow and Rock case, it was because the world had changed. Okay, so pre two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, you know the 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 market was pretty buoyant. People had a lot of money. There were big bonuses getting paid. You know, it was very easy to spend two grand on a new bike or two grand on a new pair of skis or or whatever you wanted to do. Post two thousand eight, two thousand and nine, that world changed, right? Mm-hmm. And what you had to do was was change the way the business was structured to deliver against what its consumers or its customers were looking for. Uh, and it hadn't done that. Mm. So you, you discovered, um, you got to a position where, of, of uh, point one really, uh, position A, this is really where the business is at. Yeah. Br- brutal honesty with yeah. the reality of the situation. Uh, uh, it's very, very rare that boards are brutally honest. Yeah. So the next um, step is uh, making the right strategic choices, isn't it? Yeah. And how did you bring clarity to that? Because clearly there've been a, a a quality management team, you know, potentially quality management team in that business prior to your arrival. Why why did you make? How did you 
steer yourself towards the right strategic choices where they had failed to do so? Because I think that the brutal honesty forces you to look at where the business is underperforming and the areas that the business is not delivering. If you don't have that brutal honesty on, on the first stage, where you get to with strategy is you get to a kind of vanilla solution strategy. You, you know, you end up with a strategy which is broadly speaking what you currently have and it's okay because we don't really need to change it. And, and that brutal honesty in the first stage forces you to revisit the strategy. Okay, and, and that's quite challenging to do for an existing management team and invariably, you know, I know that uh, f- for this podcast, a lot of the listeners w- won't necessarily be turnaround CEOs. But, you know, if you go in as a turnaround CEO, the, the first thing is that brutal honesty. The second thing is strategy. And the third thing then is people, right? Because yeah. y- you're not going to get where you want to get to with the people who got you where, you where you're starting from, right? Mm-hmm. It's fact. So the brutal honesty leads you to go, what could that strategy how could it look different? Why should it look different? What do we need to do differently? And that's that's taking all the signals and the signs from lots of different sources, molding them together, understanding what's happening in your sector, in your market, in your economy, and then starting to shape how how you can change the business. Yeah. And you talk about putting the right resource into the biggest opportunities, don't you? So snow, yeah. snow and rock you found some yeah, really so, big so, so so what you have, and this was one of the lessons that Chris taught me on on big climbs, you know, and Chris was you know had a lot of first ascents of a lot of big mountains, south face of Everest, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And and he always talked a lot about because I asked him, you know, what what why would your expedition be successful and somebody else's wouldn't? You're trying to climb the same mountain, you've got the same technical comp- climbing competence. And he said, Richard, the reason we're successful and somebody else isn't is because we align our resources. And that was a big lesson for me in business that right, you've got to take your resource, align it behind a clear strategy and, and a very focused strategy. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things about climbing is you can't get distracted because there's only one summit. Yeah. Right? So you know exactly where you're trying to get to. In business, invariably people get distracted because they're trying to achieve one thing, then they suddenly somebody has a good idea of something else. So you've got to be really clear about the strategy. You have three resources, you have um, you have human resource, you have physical resource, and you have capital resource. Mm-hmm. Right? And what you've got to do is make sure that those three resources are aligned behind a very clear strategy that people are focused on, where everybody knows what they're doing and how they're going to how they're going to deliver against um, against their part of, of achieving that plan. And you know, in the book, I talk about and, and it's it's quite an interesting metaphor because it's quite a simple one. Um, uh, and I use I, I use the, the kind of story about and everybody's been there, you know, a tug of war, right? And, and the team that wins the tug of war isn't the team that's got the biggest blokes all pulling in a different direction. Mm-hmm. It, it's the team that's got X number of people all perfectly aligned and pulling on the rope at exactly the same time to achieve the same goal, right? Mm-hmm. And business is exactly the same. So it's a perfect example of using a human resource mm-hmm. to achieve something. Yeah. In, in a very in a very structured in a very structured manner yeah which leads us quite nicely on to some of the content that really came alive in our discussion over dinner a few weeks ago and and that was your approach to uh, building um, a high performance team and a high performance culture 
So I think when you want to build a high-performance culture, right? And so again, go back. You you've identified why you're in the mess you're in. You've yeah. worked out what the strategy is. And now you've got to work out how to execute it. Yeah. Um, the, f- the first thing you need um, as a leader around you is is what I what what I call in the book Team One, right? Yeah. And Team One is very much about a small select group of people who you have absolute implicit trust in and they have absolute implicit trust in you and that together you can go and achieve anything you you want to achieve as a team knowing that you are totally and utterly bonded together right um, and there's and there's lots of ways to achieve this and there's, there's masses of business books being written about how you create that um, uh, uh, my skill is not trying to educate people on how you create it mm-hmm. what I discovered was you've got to have it okay if you don't have it and you know we spent a lot of time at the dinner talking about this right and and you know there are varying degrees of team one it, team one can be you if you want it to be it can be your board it can be your board and your senior management team it, it's up to you and your organization to work out what you want but you've got to have you've got to have those people in, in my case it, it was usually my board, my, my senior board, my operating board, um, and I would spend a lot of time working out why and how these guys were going to have exactly the same values and beliefs as me. Mm-hmm. You know, in the book, I, I talk a lot about um, a lot about uh, the All Blacks. You, you, you know the most successful sporting team ever and yeah. why they're so su- successful and they have this amazing saying about you, you know leaving the jersey in a better place than you found it mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know that for me coming from a sporting background was a really powerful statement and uh, and I always used to use that not I used my own version of that as a mantra for the guys that you know we, we are fortunate to to have um, to have a, a an opportunity to play a part in the history of this business, you know, our job is to leave it in a much better place than we found it, right? Yeah. And I think if you can get people bought into that, you get you get a passion and a commitment that that just transcends. Like, I'm here to do a job, yeah. and when you've got that, it, it's it's a powerful force that's unstoppable. Mm. How how did you go about identifying those key traits that you look for in a team one member? So, so, so I think you know leaders set leaders set the tone, right? And you know the leader's job is to understand is to understand what type of culture and organisation they're trying to create or they or they want to create. Uh, and interestingly, one of my reflections when I finished the Snow and Rock and I took the time off when I wrote the book was, you know, I kind of realised that in the first twenty years of my career, I thought, you know, being a good leader meant making every decision Um, and it was only latterly that I discovered actually it's the reverse of that if you're a really good leader your job is to create an amazing culture and environment that allow people to flourish and be the best they can be right and if you can get to the point where you where you don't have a job any longer then you're pretty well there to achieve it so so it's very much about understanding and mapping out what all of those drivers and values and principles and ethos are for you as an individual Mm. and then you've got to go find that in the people that you want to surround yourself with because if they don't if they have different values or different drivers or different ambitions you're never going to create a really cohesive 
team one. Mm. So, so you, have to, you have to work out what those drivers and values are for you and then you have to work out how do you blend them into your team. And I remember talking on, on the dinner and people asked me about what happens if I've got somebody in my team who doesn't have that? And my response was get rid of them. And they said, but what about if they're really good? I said, get rid of them. Because ultimately I don't care how good they are. If, if they don't buy into that team one ethos, mm. if they're not totally and utterly bonded with the rest of the guys, mm. then at some point they'll fracture that team one. Yeah. And you don't know when they're going to do it. What really came across was just the level of passion and commitment that you all need to share. I mean, it's an easy thing to say is, you know, we want to leave this shirt in a better place. We want to yeah. leave this business in a better place. But, uh, you know, it's so easy for someone to say, yeah, I'm on board with that, Richard. But really to behave in that way consistently over a long period of time I think is rare and special. Well it's rare and special but you only achieve that position if you create it. Yeah. Right. If you go if you just pay lip service to it, I I just wanna I want a board that's cohesive and you know and it wants to cuddle. Mm. <laughs> you know, you're not gonna get there. You have to create a board environment where you can have any discussion you want to have, regardless of title, mm. okay, um, you know, as brutally honest as you as you want to be, and and as the leader of the business, you have to accept that sometimes people are going to say stuff that you don't really want to hear, mm. right? And that's and that's tough, right? Because you know, t- typically CEOs and leaders have egos, you know, um, and and you kind of. You have an ultimate card, and that ultimate card is, you know, I'm the CEO, right? So it's my decision, I'm going to make it. Um, what you have to do is keep that card in your back pocket. And when people say, hey, we don't think you're right, okay, you have to be prepared to change, you know? I, I, again, I tell a story in the book, and I'll, I'll try and summarize the story now, but I was at Ashridge doing that, doing a, a kind of learning and development, strategic, managing strategic change um, course. Um, and uh, and the evening before we were due to present a case study back to the board of the case study company, um, we were it was all very fractious and we weren't organised and you know I had no power in this team other than I was just part of you know eight people trying to put a presentation together and I started to get frustrated um, and I said uh, and, and I listened to it for a bit and then I just went blah blah and I said what I thought we should do. And, and the lecturers who were sitting on the side watching suddenly stepped up and went, stop. Uh, and, and the room went silent. This was like 10 o'clock at night. Everybody was tired. And he looked at me and he went, he went, are you just, are you, are you listening? Or are you just waiting for them to finish so you can talk? Uh, uh, and there was stunned silence. But, but it was a lesson, right? Yeah. And, uh, and I took it back to the business and I said to my team, my team one, who was a really super bonded team one, I said, this is what happened. I don't do that, do I? And they all went, it's exactly what you do. It's exactly what you do. And nothing, nothing frustrates us more than when you do it. Right? And, and that's, that's the brutal piece about you look at yourself in the mirror and you go, I've got to change. Yeah. So you change that bit. Which is, uh, which is where we're going to pick up in our next podcast with you, Richard. So thank you for that. that was okay, great. I'll try not to swear next time. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> You can download our podcast series from all the usual podcast places. Or do go and subscribe to the show. We'll be back with another interview next month. But for now, goodbye and thank you for listening.